0: Escape Pod,
1: 154, April 17, 2008, Today's Story, Freedom with a Small F, by Jeffrey R. Lomingo.
2: Hello and welcome to Escape Pod, I'm Steve Ely. People tell us we take way too long between Union Do's stories, so we've got another piece for you this week in Jeffrey DiRigo's Superhero Universe. I will warn you, it's a bit darker than most of the other Union Do's stories. Yeah, and if that doesn't make you jump to the next track, then let me tell you a bit about my brain. Are the new listeners gone yet? Waha! Trust me, I'll bring this back to topic by the end of the intro. I'd said in the Metacast about a month ago that there was stuff going on with me from a mental health angle, and that I was seeking help for it. The messages of concern and support I've gotten since then have been overwhelming. Thank you. I didn't have much data at the time, but I've just spent two days this week getting neuropsychological screening for attention deficit disorder. Apart from being the most expensive logic puzzles I've ever taken, it's been an instructive process. This whole thing has been. It's a strange thing to discover when you're an adult that you've been somewhat misadjusted to the world your entire life and didn't know it. Some of you are nodding your heads in empathy. Some of you are saying, What? ADD? That's the big deal? I'm not going to turn this into a public service message, but understand. When a person has to suddenly cope with identity and cognitive processes, it may not be a big deal or even noticeable to the world at large, but to that person, it is the world at large. So, it's been a stressful time. I'll spare you the rest of the soap opera and the misadventures in pharmacology. But here's the positive and topical bit. Outside of extremes, the way to deal with ADD isn't to try to suppress it, or even necessarily to treat it as a disorder that needs to be fixed. The better approach is to understand what you're good at and try to arrange your life so that you're doing more of those things. Such as, say, fiction editing. One of my mentors at the Viable Paradise Writing Workshop was Patrick Nielsen Hayden from Tor Books. He said that one of his keys to being a successful editor was to cultivate a short attention span, shorter than the average reader. The job of an editor is to act as a proxy for an audience. So, if a storyline kept his attention, it was that much more likely to engage readers. From that perspective, I'm more ready to succeed than ever. And with that, here's a story that kept my attention. We bring you Union Dues, Freedom with a Small F by Jeffrey R. DeRigo. Mr. DeRigo lives in New Hampshire and has appeared with his Union Dues stories here many times, along with some fabulous zombie stories at TalesOfWorldWarZ.com. And thanks to an interview with him on SciFiDig.com, which I'll link to, it's only recently come to my attention that I've been mispronouncing his last name since 2005. I'm very sorry, Mr. we We'll get it right from here on. The story is read for us this week by Nuri of the Artist Alley Podcast. This is the podcast for amateur artists and commissioners. Nuri is also a talented and successful artist herself, with, among other things, the coolest jewelry made from role-playing dice I've ever seen. You can find her work and her podcast at candycornstudios.com. So listen, but don't touch. It's story time.
1: Union dues. Freedom with a small F. By Jeffrey R. Durigo, 1. I'm in the naughty schoolgirl costume. I have to safety pin the plaid skirt in the back and tie the see-through white blouse instead of buttoning it. The get-up used to fit perfectly, but either one of the other dancers stretched it out, or I've lost more weight than I want to think about. The jukebox creaks and rattles as Hot for Teacher falls onto the turntable. We have to pay for our own music here, even though there's a DJ barking at the crowd. I hit the chrome pole just as the song starts. Hands offering dollar bills float just beyond the bright stage lights. Cigarette smoke masks the customers' faces until I am almost on top of them. Lots of regulars tonight. I've got at least fifteen bucks in my garter already. Not bad for the first thirty seconds of my stage time. Island Oasis is a dive, but not so bad that people won't come here. Then again, I suppose any bar with nude dancers will draw a crowd, even if every third customer dies from poisoned beer. The blouse comes off first, then the skirt. The men hoot and cheer as I progress down to just shoes and some skin glitter. Hot hands brush my flesh. The rough edges of one and five dollar bills scrape up my thigh. Customers aren't supposed to touch us, but that's state law and not necessarily club policy. I try and make eye contact with anyone who tips, blow them a kiss, too. The guitar solo starts, and I strut back to the pole. The song ends a minute later. I haven't even broken a sweat. Let's hear it for the naughtiest schoolgirl in New Bedford, Josie Juggs! I walk off stage as Rosemary slips past and starts feeding dollars to the jukebox. She's older than me. I'm nineteen, by at least ten years, but looks more like twenty. She cues up her signature song, Push It. I'm in the back dressing room before the first bass thump. The other girls are hustling the floor for lap dances and expensive watered-down drinks. New costume now. Atomic snot green lace gown. Stockings that'll glow in the black lights. Fix my makeup. Rosemary has left a rail of Coke on the dressing table. I take half, and it burns my sinuses for a second before a rush of happy warmth spreads out through my body. I swing out of the dressing room and start the hustle. I keep moving to hide my constant twitching. I've made sixty bucks in lap dances, and probably another twenty in kickbacks on vodka tonics before the DJ calls my name. Five minutes to curtain, Josie. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. Some of the girls work out the back, car-dating customers. I haven't, but that doesn't mean I won't. Katie said she made an extra 300 bucks last week in, like, 45 minutes. 300 bucks goes a long way. Closing time. I count out the night's take. 423. I've done better. I slip into my regular clothes. Black sweats. Pink t-shirt. Pair of scuffed black high-heeled boots then pull my mop of glittered red hair into a ponytail. The hollow cheeks and pale skin in the mirror are mine, but I try not to look at my reflection much anymore. No girl wants to watch herself die. Club policy is we tip the bartender 10%, doormen get 5% too each, another 5% for the DJ, and 5 for the stage fee. All said and done, I clear almost 300. Not bad for eight hours' work. Not great but not bad. I drop an even 50 on Tommy Martinez at the bar. He palms a little brown vial into my hands. Little something extra for my favorite lady, Tommy winks and places the vodka tonic on a little square napkin right in front of me. I slip the Coke into my purse, down my shift drink, the only one that isn't water and lime juice tonight. It's a long walk home, but the Coke and the booze aren't getting along. I'm nauseous, and call a cab from the battered payphone right outside the front door. Ten minutes, and the driver says he doesn't want to let me out. Not surprising, as I'm in the middle of an abandoned mill complex. Lady, he says, this ain't no safe place. Just take the money. Finally, I shove the bill through the slot in the bulletproof glass that separates us, and climb out of the taxi. I walk off a little until I'm sure he's gone, then leap up to the third-floor fire escape. The top floor is mine, but it's not much of an apartment really. One small bedroom, one small kitchen and living room, and a bathroom with shower. The windows are tinted so no one can see inside. The fire escape is the only way in, but the bottom two floors worth of iron steps are rusted away. <laughs> home again, home again, jiggity jig. I shower the glitter and most of the cigarette smoke off, and wrap up in a pink terry cloth robe that smells like a month old gym sock. My radio only picks up the local talk station after I accidentally broke the antenna off, but it's enough noise to drown out some of the loneliness. They're talking about the police contract negotiations. Inner City Police, the largest private security firm in the United States, with patrolman (laughs) contracts in every city from coast to coast, has threatened to walk off the job. My gear waits for me in a hidden closet framed into the bedroom wall. I start pulling the pieces out. Blood-red one-piece custom-fitted breastplate. Magenta Teflon spandex one-piece jumpsuit. Blood-red knee-high leather steel toe boots. Red gauntlets with integrated communicator and beacon. Black and red calf-length cape. And red eye mask. All the stuff laid out on the mattress looks good. I wriggle into the one-piece. It's custom-fitted, but I've lost more weight than I thought and the Kevlar-impregnated spandex doesn't hug me as tightly. Depressing. I tap out a little pile of coke onto my knuckles and burn my sinuses. I'm starting to feel like myself. The breastplate goes on easy. I have to adjust the straps in the back to make it fit well enough to protect me from knives and bullets, but still let me breathe. I've pulled to the tightest setting, and it still isn't quite snug enough. It'll have to do. Boots next then gloves. I'm thirsty, but the fridge is empty except for leftover Chinese food from a month ago. I slam the door before the stink makes me puke. Another blast of Coke and the repulsion goes away. I find a half-empty pint bottle of Smirnoff and gulp down three shots. My weapons, all non-lethal, are stored in a plastic box in the bottom of the closet. Sticky goo cartridges, empty. Taser, dead battery. Smoke bombs wet, and therefore useless. Telescoping baton. Well, that works, at least. I clip it to my belt and drain the last of the vodka. The booze hits me like a speeding bus full of angry skinheads. I try to tap out a full rail of the coke, but my hands aren't steady enough, and the gloves make me extra clumsy. I snort what I can off the counter, but it's not enough to level me out. I stumble towards the fire escape, but my feet are having a dance contest, and my brain wasn't invited. I stumble to a kitchen chair and sit, heart thundering, eyes blurry. Get a grip, girl, you've got work to do. I put my head in my hands as the flat spins around and around and around. Shake it off, Crimson, shake it off. One hour and three flashes of cold, sick sweat later, I come out of the stupor, but it's almost dawn. Too late to make any headway in the war on crime. I crawl halfway to the futon and fall asleep. Two. I hate the laundromat. Soap costs three dollars. Each washer is four. Each dryer, five. Twenty-one dollars. I buy a newspaper and a couple of comics. Tales from the Union of Superheroes. And Megaton from the convenience store across the street. I thumb through the pages and smile at the drawings of a half-dozen people or so I used to serve with. Then it depresses me, and I push the books into the trash. The newspaper headline takes up the full top quarter of the front page. Police Chief's son kidnapped! I struggle through the story, but I don't read well because the letters all jumble up on me, especially when they're really close together. I don't know the police chief personally, but the picture of the kid is right there under the headline. He's less than a year old. By the time I'm able to work my way through the story of the mayor and inner-city management fighting over a new patrolman contract, the laundry needs to be swapped to the dryers. A couple of kids run back and forth between the washers, screaming, bang, bang, with plastic guns drawn. My head throbs. I think about the mess in the fridge the heaps of crap in the flat while I force the clumps of wet clothes into the dryers. As far as I know, I'm the only union member who works outside the system, the only one tasked specifically with fighting crime. Secretly, of course. Darksider put the program together with one of the luminaries as a way to explore expanding our role in the maintenance of normal society. He chose me specifically, because I'm the only super-agile who is also an orphan. Therefore. I won't be tempted to throw my costume in a dumpster and make a break for Mom and Dad. Communication with the union ended seven months ago. Darksider was supposed to make sure that a stipend was deposited into a bank account under my phony name every month, but that stopped too. I don't know why. I tried everything to make contact, short of walking up to the Boston Pyramid and knocking. Not that it would have done any good since none of the regular union even knows I exist. Six weeks later, I started looking for work. It's been rough, but I'm doing okay, I guess. Sure, I have some issues and no real-life skills. The union provides everything—room, board, bathroom supplies, and hey, even laundry for their members. I had to learn all this stuff on my own, out here, with no money. The dryer stops after only fifteen minutes, and of course, my clothes are warm and still very damp. I break another ten at the change machine, and get the clothes tumbling again. Geez, thirty-one bucks to do two loads of laundry. There's a pizza place two blocks up the road, and even though the very idea of eating puts my stomach cramps into overdrive, I walk there and order two slices with extra pepperoni and a Zazo Cola for five bucks. The smell inside the place reignites my appetite, and I gobble down the first wedge so fast it doesn't have time to burn the roof of my mouth. The girl at the counter has a nose piercing, like a little silver hoop. It looks cool. She's staring at me. Finally, I ask, What? You... you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Why? She moves her finger under her piercing and looks away. I do the same. Blood. Great and is stripped all over my second slice. Wonderful. I rip a handful of napkins from the dispenser and squeeze down on my nose. I take the soda and head back towards the laundromat. I bleed for a long, long time. The laundry is done, but most of my jeans are still damp. I screen out a T-shirt, jeans, cotton panties, and bra that are dry enough to wear, and shove the rest into a canvas bag. The little bathroom at the back of the place is barely big enough to stand in, but I manage to change. My sweats are a total loss. I stuff them into the trash can and step out of the bathroom. Some asshole has stolen my clean clothes. I run from the laundromat hoping to see someone, anyone, lumping thirty pounds of laundry down Purchase Street. No such luck. Calm down, calm down, unclench your fists. Breathe deep and count to a billion. I storm into the closest liquor store and buy two pint bottles of the cheapest vodka on the shelf. Ten dollars even. I'm just under the abandoned railroad bridge when I get the first one open and gulp half of it. My throat burns so bad I nearly choke the booze back up. It should be illegal to sell vodka this awful. I finish the pint, in two more swigs, and then hurl the empty bottle against a concrete pillar. 3. I make it to work ten minutes late. I forgot to put aside ten bucks for cab fare and had to walk. I spent my last fifty bucks on an eighth of a gram from Tommy and did half of it before getting into costume. Tonight, I work the floor in a black lace mini-dress, stockings, garter, and clear plastic platform heels. Katie helped put my hair up to show off my blue eyes. The club is dark enough that no one can see the dark circles beneath them. I don't get the stage for another 25 minutes, about seven songs in jukebox time. We've got ten dancers tonight, including me, because it's Saturday. Selling lap dances early in the evening is really hard, because the customers aren't frisky or drunk enough yet to drop twenty on a three-minute personal bump and grind. I've only got about ten bucks in singles after the first two hours. Rosemary sidles up beside me. Cheap, bastard, she mutters. Who? She points at a little group of men in the circular booth at the right-hand side of the stage. Tommy, can't you get them to move to the back or something? You're bankrupting us for Christ's sake. He answers, they paid extra to sit there. Sorry. Who are they? I can make out four men in suits, but they look like just about everyone else in here. I don't know them, but I've seen at least two of them on TV, managers at inner city police. You'd think they'd be out looking for the chief's kid rather than wasting the stage space in here. Isn't the chief their boss? Nah, the chief is appointed by the mayor to make sure that inner city does their job. Really? Cheap bastards, she mutters. I'm telling everyone to ignore that side of the stage. They don't want to tip, then screw them. Yeah? Getting anything good off the floor yet? Rosemary glances down at my pathetic stack of dollar bills. Nope. Things will pick up, Josie. Don't worry. I'm watching the men in the circular booth now. Why would inner-city bosses be in here when the kidnapping is front-page news? Wouldn't they want to make a big show of searching or something? The men keep on talking, even as Katie is flashing her bits right there at the edge. They don't even throw her a buck. Hey, Rosemary, what you bet I can get them to buy at least a lap dance? She laughs. In this place, nothing. A car date, then. The words came out of my mouth before I can think to stop them. She laughs even harder. You don't car date, Josie. Well, I'm not making any money the regular way. You score a car date with just one of them, and I'll forget you owe me twenty bucks for the line you stole last night. Okay, deal. I work the floor and try to stay close to the circular booth but the music is way too loud for me to overhear anything they say. Six songs in now, and I head back to the dressing room. Rosemary has drawn a grid on the big mirror in lipstick. She's written every girl's name but mine down the left-hand side with a dollar value next to it and put a check mark in either the yes or no column. Jesus, Rosemary, way to make me feel like a streetwalker. Oh, come on, this will liven things up tonight. Yeah, for them. I squeeze into a red spandex bikini. The bottom has a long devil tail stitched on the back. Red stockings, red headband with horns, red elbow-length gloves, and red pumps. I slip a half-dozen dollar bills into my garter and head out to the stage. The men in the circular booth barely notice me for the first half of Shout at the Devil. But one of them is starting to pay more attention to me than to his pals, Older guy, maybe forty, diamond wedding ring on his left hand. I finish this song and strut off the stage, but keep the devil costume on. I buy a glass of ice water at the bar for two dollars and wet my whistle before sauntering over. The men only acknowledge me when I stand almost on top of them. What's the matter, boys, you don't like me? I finger the few dollars in my garter. Piss off, one of them says. Come on, you wouldn't be here if you didn't want us to dance for you. I turn around, swing my hips, and the tail follows. Twenty bucks and I'm yours for four minutes. I slap my exposed buttock. Everything else is negotiable. We said piss off, now go away. Aw, you don't mean that for all of you. I make eye contact with Diamond Ring. I know at least one of you wants me to stick around. Or maybe he wants to come over to the bar and buy me a drink. I sway to the bar and look back over my shoulder. Diamond Ring is watching me. Tommy has thrown out my ice water. Asshole. I buy another one and lean over the bar and make sure the tail swings back and forth, back and forth. Rosemary is on stage and I catch her eye. She smiles and nods towards the men. Diamond Ring stands up and straightens his black slacks before threading through the crowd towards the bar where I'm waiting. 4. We're in the men's room. His tongue tastes like old cigars, cheap whiskey, and garlic. His hands are all over me, but I don't concentrate on that because he's got a holstered pistol under his left shoulder. I push back just a little and unsnap the leather strap keeping the gun in place. He doesn't notice. I can't do this in here. I'll lose my job. He mumbles something about not giving a shit and pushes back in for another kiss. And you're on camera. He freezes. I point to a little hole in the ceiling. Where's your car? We can go there. He shakes his head. I didn't drive and we're parked out front. Take me to your place or I'll get us a room at the motel up the road. I have a better idea. Wait for me outside, out back. I kiss him again and then squeeze out of the bathroom. Rosemary is waiting in the narrow hallway. She hands me the keys to her car. I didn't think you'd do it, Josie. I wink and sneak into the back to fix my lipstick and tap out a line. I'm shaking, but the coke takes my mind off being nervous. The dressing room emergency door opens to the back parking lot. I slip out. Diamond Ring is there, pacing slowly near the dumpster. Rosemary drives a little tiny Hyundai, two-door, so two adults in the back seat is impossible. I toss the keys at Diamond Ring and slide into the small passenger seat. His hands are on me before he even gets the door closed, but I stop him and make him put in the key and turn on the radio. Then I draw his pistol. Drive. He isn't sure yet that what I've just done has actually happened. I don't understand. Drive the fucking car. I make sure the safety is off. And keep both hands on the wheel. He starts the engine and takes us out of the parking lot. I keep the pistol against his right side. Where's the chief's kid? You're as good as dead, he says. The kid! I shove the barrel hard against his ribs take me to where you assholes have him my friends are going to come looking for me drive me to where the kid is and they might find you alive they'll scramble every single inner city cop for 30 miles if they think something's happened you'll never be able to hide shut up and drive he drives us in a zigzag pattern "'until we reach far into the north end "'and a row of tenement buildings "'stretching down towards one of the city's "'abandoned mill complexes. "'He parks between a black Ford Explorer "'and a red minivan. "'Address, apartment number, now. thirteen. third floor. "'If I get up there and you lied to me, "'I'll kill you.' "'I smash the pistol across his nose, "'then hard down on the back of his neck. "'Sweet dreams.' 5. Tenements are easy to scale, but I ring the apartment doorbell beneath the intercom instead. They don't answer immediately. Someone thunders down the steps. I smile up at him. They sent me from the club. The man is big, broad chest and a thick black mustache. What club? Island Oasis. They paid in advance. I reach out slowly and touch his chest. It's all muscle. He pulls the door open and hesitates for a second before leading me up to the third floor. He and three men crowd the small living room. The baby shrieks from the bedroom off to the right. Looky what Sanderson sent us. It must be bonus day. Can someone shut the kid up? Jesus. He's been screaming all night. Just turn up the music to drown it out. Okay, bonus. Let's see what you got. Mustache crosses his arms and steps back as someone else turns up the music. Is anyone else here? I'm supposed to make sure you all get treated right. This is it. I start to dance. There's a big plate glass window in the living room, a kitchen just behind me with a back door to another set of stairs. The guards are sitting, whooping as I spin and twirl. Black Mustache is still standing near the bedroom. A cell phone rings, and black mustache answers. I can hear only his half of the conversation. Yeah, man, it's cool. No, I haven't heard from anyone, and thanks for the bonus. Huh? Yeah, she's right here. Red hair, dressed like the devil, and she's got... He doesn't say another word, because I've slammed my high heel through the phone and his cheekbone. The other three scramble out of their seats. I knock one down, then the other. The third gets his hands on me and shoves me back. I knock the radio and the little side table over. Black Mustache fumbles for a pistol and fires. A bullet grazes my shoulder, just as I drop kick him through the bedroom door. I snatch the still-screaming kid off the mattress. I use the last guard as a battering ram and ride him through the plate-glass window and onto the fire escape with a screaming baby in my arms. 6. The kid's voice quiets a little as I bolt down the street into the heavy weekend traffic. High school kids cruise up and down the long main street of the North End. I leap the idling cars and turn south. Street level is going to get me killed. I pause long enough to hear sirens erupt from all three police stations. I spring onto a low-roofed gas station, a two-story house beside it, and a row of three-decker tenements beyond. I'm crossing the rooftops at full speed when the helicopter spotlights first swing over the side streets. The kid is wriggling and crying, and he throws off my balance. I stumble twice, and can't catch my breath easily. We squeeze into the shadow behind a chimney for a minute. Blue lights flash on the street below. Sirens drown out my thundering heartbeat. The kid's eyes are deep brown, his skin coffee-colored. Don't worry, baby, I have you. The chopper sweeps low just north of me, and I spring out, off the roof to the telephone pole, to the roof across the street. What do I do now? I can't call 911. I can't bring the kid back to his dad because I have no idea where he lives. I should have thought this through a little better. My shoulder is bleeding hard. Maybe the bullet didn't just graze me. I clamp a hand down over it and hope it stops before I have to run again. I'm starting to get dizzy. The spotlight throws a bright oval on the roof across the street. Choppers are so close the rotor wash kicks up dust and dead leaves all around me. I turn east and I run like hell along the rooftops. Step, 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 jump, repeat. I've cleared six blocks when the roof line runs out at Tarklin Hill Road. Cop cars scream back and forth. There's an elementary school across the way, one of the old-fashioned brick ones. Wires run from the phone pole to the roof of the building. No one sees me cross the road. The kid is still screaming, and here, away from the traffic, he's going to draw plenty of attention. I struggle up to the elementary school roof and kick in one of the skylights. I wait for a few seconds for an alarm, but all's quiet except for the baby. Amber streetlights filter in through the school's tinted windows. Still plenty dark, but I can see okay. I limp down to the cafeteria on the first floor. I push into the darkness and prop the swinging door so I have just enough light to rummage around. Milk cartons in a cooler. Chocolate and regular. Jackpot. I grab four cartons. My arm is numb and the adrenaline is starting to wear off, so everything else throbs and aches. Since most kids manifest during their teen years, it's a good bet that an elementary school principal doesn't have a hotline to the union in the office. I sit on the cold vinyl couch in front of the principal's office with the kid on my lap. I put the carton to his lips, and he quiets down. The kid sits upright with the milk held between his chubby fingers. He stopped crying now that he has some food in his stomach. He'll be asleep soon. I ease onto the floor and lay him down on the couch cushions, then rub his back until he burps. What a day for you, kid. Thank God you won't remember it. I sit there in the dark silence. My head pounds and the milk churns in my stomach like a nest of really pissed-off yellow jackets. I crawl to the telephone. I'm running on autopilot by now and barely recognize the numbers I'm dialing. It rings twice. Our Lady of Mercy Home for Children, Father Rodriguez, speaking. I can barely choke out the words. This is Shannon O'Reilly. I was... Shan! My God! It's been at least five years. I didn't know who else to call. I burst into sobs and spill out everything of the last six months. He gives me the union recruitment hotline number. He says he'll pray for me. I dial the 800 number with shaky fingers and wait seven rings before someone with a thick Indian accent answers. Thank you for calling the Union of Superheroes recruitment line. I have tracked your callback number to Davil School in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Is this principal Fergundes? Listen, I'm a union member. I need to be patched through to Dark Cider, or anyone in special services. I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm only authorized to speak with the principal. Listen to me, idiot. Put me through now. I'm a union member, and this is an emergency. I need a patch-through to special services. The phone goes dead, and I crumple to the floor. A grumpy voice echoes out of the handset speaker. Who is this? Darksider? Silence. This is Crimson Nightshade. Darksider, answer me, you asshole. Calm down. I need an evac. I'm at a school or something. Every cop in this city is after me, and I have a kid in danger. Trigger your beacon, and I'll dispatch. I don't have a goddamn beacon. Okay, relax. Why are the police after you? Blue lights flood the office for a second. They're spreading their search radius outwards. They'll start checking big, otherwise empty buildings like this one before long. I explain the contract talks, inner city, and the kidnapped baby. The kid's asleep now, but he won't be for long, and it's still six hours until anyone even unlocks the door to this place. They're going to find us. Are you there? Darksider? Silence for a full minute. Finally, he answers. Lay low, get back to your place, and wait. Are you freaking kidding? I can't just walk home like this. He hangs up just as Inner City bashes the front door open. The kid wakes up screaming but I leave him behind and charge into the front hallway to face a phalanx of electrified riot shields. 7. I wake up to harsh fluorescent lights. My right arm is handcuffed to a hospital bed. The soft, perpetual beeping of machinery fills the room. I get to blink once before the pain in my arm nearly rockets me off the mattress. I sit up and grit my teeth. How long have I been out? Figures they'd cuff my injured arm. Angry voices in the hallway take my mind off the pane for a second. There's a woman outside the door. A small one. Brown bobbed hair and wire-framed glasses. She looks like a schoolteacher. I told you the papers from the public defender's office should already be at Inner City HQ. For crying out loud, call them. I'll wait. A nurse pushes a medicine cart through the commotion. The cop locks the door behind her. She glances at the chart, then back over her shoulder. Her blonde hair is pulled into a tight ponytail under a too large nurse's hat. She looks like a kid in a Halloween costume. I shake my head and stare at her for a second. "'How old are you, twelve? Sixteen. she winks. "'Relax, okay?' She puts her hand on my forehead as if she's checking for a fever. My body feels completely painless after two heartbeats. Who are you? It's stuffy in here. She slides the window open. Long drop, this is the sixth floor. The other lady is still outside, arguing with the cops. When I look back, the nurse has popped the handcuffs open with a key. She shoves a bundle of clothes from somewhere in the cart beneath the blankets. She notices that I'm watching the commotion outside the door. Don't worry about Miss Jennifer, she says. She could argue the devil out of his pitchfork. I wriggle into black sweatpants and a yellow T-shirt with a Team Shikaragaki Go logo on it. Count to 120, then jump. Black limo, two blocks north, parked under a red maple tree. Suddenly, I see the car and the tree like a memory of a snapshot. Your union? The nurse smiles, then puts an index finger over her lips. Start counting. I'm almost at 100, when the nurse accidentally bumps the cop at the door and he falls over. The two women scream that he's having a seizure. The public defender woman glances in at me and smiles as I drop out the window. 8. The limousine door opens as I run up the street. We're barreling out of the city before I can even catch my breath. Alex Nova hands me a cold bottle of water. How's the arm? He pokes at the bandages, but whatever the nurse did has shut off the pain. I glare at him and gulp the water down. He's wearing a black double-breasted suit with a red handkerchief tucked into his breast pocket. I never realized the luminaries were this much older than me. His hair is dyed yellow but shows silver-gray roots. Crow's feet stretch outward from his piercing blue eyes. "'Good work,' he says. "'I read up on the whole contract negotiation thing. "'Darksider let them arrest me, tase me. "'I called for an evac, and—' "'He cocks his head. "'You aren't officially linked to the Union. "'But you would have been if Darksider had sent a jet to scoop you up. "'They almost freaking killed me! "'Acceptable risk. "'When the cops found the kid, "'they had no choice but to return him, unharmed, to his father.' That took all the wind out of inner-city's negotiation tactics. Yet, with a mystery woman to pin the kidnapping on, inner-city looks like heroes. We couldn't have asked for a better ending. You restored equilibrium to the city. How did you know who had the kid? I took a guess. I don't even bother trying to hide the anger in my voice. He smiles proudly, then says, I wouldn't have given you this project if I didn't trust your instincts. "'What happened? Where were you? Six months is a long time.' "'You were never too far out of sight.' He pauses and leans in close to whisper. Josie jugs. "'We post-hypnotically prevented you from becoming a burglar. Now we know where to expand those suggestions. "'We had to know what it was like outside. You of all people should know just how bad things are.' "'How do you think the tribunal will react when they hear my story?' How do you think it'll make you and the rest of the luminaries look? And what makes you think you'll be talking to anyone in the Union other than me? Your work is too important to jeopardize with that kind of disclosure. You're the prototype, the template. He pauses and grimaces as his face goes flush. Hand me a water, will you? Maybe I can wash away this goddamn heartburn. We ride back to Boston in silence, but the car doesn't pull off into the city. Where are we going? Manchester, New Hampshire. Big gang problems there. We've already got a place set up for you. New gear, too. And if I say no? Antarctica is very cold every time of the year. He stares at me. His face is rock-hard. We pull off the highway. Manchester looks eerily like New Bedford. Same brick factories, same three-deckers, same streets. The limo stops in front of a nondescript white house in a tenement neighborhood. Third floor, he says. R&R for a couple of months. Heal up, get fit, then get back to work. Nova hands me a key. We'll be watching. The limo pulls away as I unlock the back door and trudge up the dark stairway to the apartment. It's nicer than the factory flat, they even furnished this one with a small washer and dryer beside the refrigerator. He's left a new driver's license, even though I don't know how to drive, social security card, even though I'll never collect, and ATM card on the table. My name is Molly O'Shanlin now. I sit on a throw rug in the center of the small living room and listen to the whine of faraway police sirens. Alone again. I start to sob.
2: And that was our story. It's always a tough thing when your employer doesn't respect you. Sometimes you've got to stick with them just for the health plan, and sometimes you don't. We're going to do another couple of stories for feedback. By total coincidence, the first one is the last Union Deuce story we did, All That We Leave Behind, by Jeffrey Dorigo. This one went over very well with listeners. Hitting the negative comments first, Talia found it a bit predictable and not overly memorable, and Whiskey and Nutmeg finds the whole universe flat. Quote, It doesn't bring anything new or exciting to the table. But for many others, it was their favorite Union Deuce story yet. As J.D. Harper wrote, And for once, it isn't entirely depressing. Awesome. Scott C. had a similar comment, with an added, Damn, these stories can be grim. So, uh, I hope you like this week's. Michael King says that the Union Do's stories are the best superhero fiction series since George Martin's Wild Cards, and in many ways, it surpasses it. And apparently, a surprisingly large number of people called that 1-800-GO-UNION number from the story. So did I but I wasn't in the mood for the stimulating conversation I was offered, so I didn't follow it up. Escape Pod 150, This My Body by Jeremy Tolbert, a very sensual story about a sacred prostitute with unique taste, got a lot of responses, even discounting all the LOL cat's I has flavor pictures that got posted. It didn't fly with everyone, A. James, quote, didn't have the stomach for it, and several others found it either too gross or too predictable. V asked, why is it that the stories that are full of sex are always fairly lackluster? On the plus side, many people were captured by the sensual prose style of the piece, or by the merging of food, sex, and religion. Scott Sigler found it outstanding for its original premise Quote, I do not like stories with sex in them. I think most people add sex to make the story controversial, and it's usually trite trash. In fact, I hate this kind of story. And even with that in mind, Mr. Tolbert blew my doors off. I can't say enough good things about it. High praise from him. And last, and in my baffled opinion least, we had three, yes, three, comments offering kudos for, quote, Steve's girly orgasm squeal. Aranya wrote, The Steve-on-Steve voice hetero action didn't entirely turn me off. It made me giggle a bit. It's good to know I had talents I didn't know I had. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is released on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. All of the rights are reserved by our authors. If you like this week's story, please tell a friend or blog about us. And if you can, consider donating via the PayPal link at our site. This will let us keep paying our authors. You can also check out our horror podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org, and our fantasy podcast, PodCastle, at podcastle.org. And buy collectible CDs and DVDs at poddisc.com. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. Our special closing music is Just Misunderstood by Norm Sherman of the Fantastic Drabblecast podcast. It has nothing to do with anything, except that Dorigo also writes zombie stories. But when I heard it on the Drabblecast today, I had to get permission to play it. It's the only emo song I've ever really enjoyed. If you aren't listening to the Drabblecast yet, you truly must. They produce great, weird flash stories with some incredible production values behind them. I also had a supporting voice role in this week's story. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from Moliere, who wrote, Writing is like prostitution. First you do it for love, and then for a few close friends, and then for money. We'll see you next week. Have fun.
0: My heart is bleeding and I can't deal with the pain Your words cut through me like a knife These wounds will never heal, these scars will still remain Feel like I'm dead inside but somehow still alive And I'm not an angsty teenager just going through a phase I'm not just trying to buy myself Not just at that age, I'm a zombie. I'm 16. And no one understands me. Cause I can't speak. It's me against society. And I'm hungry. They call me Mr. Undead. But I'm just misunderstood. It was the planets alighting with the moon That made me rise out from my tomb I lurched around past my curfew And so you sent me to my room Next day you were banging on my door Said that I needed to do my chores I don't think you even realize I'm not living anymore Tell me what page it's on In the Necronomicon That says before the that blow the earth, they have to mull the law. I don't want your sympathy. I don't need your main advice. You can't tell me how to live, cause technically I already died. You could never feel my pain. Don't know why you even tried. You can't tell me how to live, cause technically. not alive and later on the very next day you logged onto my myspace page and read that blog that i just wrote that said i wanted to eat your brains your stupid rules are also lame and your nagging is relentless i don't see how my eating brains is any of Business. Your sticks and stones may break my bones and your flamethrowers may burn me, but only direct headshots will ultimately concern me. Don't want your sympathy, I don't need your main advice. You can't tell me how to move, cause technically I already died. You could never feel my pain. Don't know why you even try. I'm not alive Clean your room, take out the trash Go to school and cut the grass No more groans, no more growls No more moaning, pointless vows. Get a haircut, get a job Don't eat the cat, don't eat the dog No more lurching, no more jewels. Sick and tired of all your rules Don't want your sympathy I don't need your name advice Cause technically I already died You could never feel my pain Don't know why you even try You can't tell me how to live Cause technically I'm not alive I'm a zombie I'm 16 And no one understands me Cause I can't speak It's me against society I'm hungry They call me Mister Undead But I'm just misunderstood